chapter 18, verse number 21. One of my favorite stories about forgiveness concerns a man who was bitten by a dog, which he later discovered was rabid. The man was rushed to the hospital where the test revealed that he indeed had contracted rabies. At the time, medical science had no solution for that problem, and the doctor faced the difficult task of informing him that his condition was incurable and terminal. So he said, sir, we will do what we can to make you comfortable, but I cannot give you any false hope. There's nothing that we can really do. My best advice to you is to put your affairs in order as soon as possible. The dying man sank back on his bed in shock, but finally he rallied enough strength to ask for a pen and some paper. He then set to work with great energy. An hour later, when the doctor returned, the man was still writing vigorously. He said, I'm glad to see that you're working on your will. The man said, this ain't no will, doc. This is a list of people I'm going to bite before I die. <laughs> Afraid many people live by that motto. They have a kind of a list, written in their minds at least, if not on paper. You know, it's easy to proclaim the virtue of forgiveness, but the reality of it is another matter. C.S. Lewis put it very well when he said, Forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. But why is forgiveness so hard? Well, let me just point out a couple of things. Forgiveness is simple, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. First of all, forgiveness is difficult because it's not natural. The natural human impulse is to get even to exact revenge. Forgiveness really goes against the grain of human existence. Secondly, forgiveness is hard because it's not fair. To forgive without repayment offends our sense of justice. We want to be vindicated. To forgive is to surrender our right to get even. There's a little story that reveals how we feel sometimes. The mother ran into the bedroom when she heard her seven-year-old son scream. She found that his three-year-old sister was pulling his hair. And so she found what was going on and she gently released the little girl's grip from her brother's hair and said comforting to the little boy, there, there. She didn't mean it. She doesn't know that it hurts. He nodded his head in acknowledgement, and the mother left the room. As she was walking down the hall, <clears throat> she heard the little girl scream. Rushing back in, she asked, what happened? The little boy says, she knows now. <laughs> Today in our study through the book of Matthew, we see the apostle Peter also struggled with the issue of forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus has been dealing with the subject of dealing with a brother who has sinned. As Peter listens to Jesus 
teaching about that and the steps of discipline. He fastens on one, a- on one aspect of that problem. And that is, what does this mean about how much I must forgive someone else who has wronged me? Peter directs his question to the Lord in verse 21. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up up to seven times. Now, Peter makes two mistakes that are apparent to us today. First of all, he assumes that it is his brother who will sin against him and not he against his brother. And secondly, Peter wanted to set some kind of limit on forgiveness. In all fairness to Peter, he is very generous in his limit. He asked if forgiving seven times would be sufficient. The rabbis of that time taught that one must forgive three times based on a misunderstanding of what the book of Amos says in the Old Testament about that God would revoke punishment for three transgressions, but not for four. And so he, he doubled what the rabbis were teaching. He said not only six, but added one more to it and said seven. I believe that Jesus dumbfounded Peter with his reply in verse 22. He says, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. The term 70 times seven is literally in the text 70 sevens and is a little ambiguous because it can mean either 70 plus seven, thus as it's translated if you have the NIV translated as 77 or seven, 70 times seven, which is 490. But the meaning is the same. It is a call for unlimited forgiveness. He's not saying that we should keep a strict count of how many times we've forgiven someone. Well, that's, uh, that's 488 and that's 489. Uh, well, you better watch out one more time. You're out. The point is, by the time we have forgiven someone that many times, you're in the habit of forgiving and will not need to set limits. In answering Peter's question, Jesus understood how difficult this concept was, and so he he told a story. The story has come to be known as the parable of the unforgiving servant. In this story, Jesus deals with man's two greatest needs with regard to forgiveness. In the first part, verses 21 through 27, he deals with those who need forgiveness. And in the second half, verses 18 through 35, he targets those of us who need to forgive others. But before we examine the parable, I want you to remember three things. First of all, forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, I can forgive, but I can never forget. You may forget, but your forgiving can be sincere even if you remember. When God says he forgets our sins, it doesn't mean that he has amnesia. They don't suddenly slip out of his memory. He simply does not remember them against us. Secondly, forgiveness is not justifying or excusing or saying that we even understand why the person acted the way he or she did. 
Forgiving does not make what they did okay. It makes us okay. And forgiveness is our emotional response to the offender. Pardon deals with the consequences of the offense. And unless we have the authority to pardon the offense, we may not be able to do that. Meaning you break the law, you may still have to face the consequences even if I forgive you. Look with me first of all at man's first great need is receiving forgiveness. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. The first thing we notice is enormous debt. Here is a man who owes an enormous amount of money. The word that is translated 10,000 was the largest number used in calculation in those days. And a talent was a, the largest unit of currency that was available. A talent was a weight of money equal to 6,000 denarii. One denarii equaled what a laborer could earn as his wage for an entire day's work. If you add that all up, you find that we, a talent, one talent, was the equivalent of one man's wages for 20 years. If you figured that this man earned even $20,000 a year, that would mean that his debt was like $2 billion. The annual taxes for Judea, Idumea, Samaria, Galilee, and Perea combined was only $800,000 in those days. The point was... This debt was a, an amount that was inconceivable. There was no possible way that he could ever repay it. Notice the undeserved grace. Verse 26 says, The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will repay you all. Confronted by the consequences of his action, what he does is plead for more time. A careful reading of that verse reveals that this man still doesn't get it. What he asked for was patience and an extension of time. No matter how much time he's been, he will be given, he would never in a 20 lifetimes be able to come up with that amount of money. Verse 27 reveals that it is the character of the master, not the character of the servant, that produces the release from debt. The master made a decision based on compassion. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him his debt. The master forgave his servant out of compassion for he and his family. We need to see ourselves in this, and if we're going to see ourselves in this, uh, we need to understand that our condition before God we must see the sum of our offenses against the holy God throughout the years of our lifetime constitutes that kind of a debt, an enormous, impossible amount. Our rebellions, our selfish acts, our willful choices, our pride, our anger, our lust, our bitterness, our hates, 
All those things add up through the years to a staggering debt that we owe God and we cannot repay. But then comes the good news, the wonderful news of the gospel that we can be forgiven in Christ's name. I expect this morning that some of you here today have someone or something that you need to ask for forgiveness about. According to Matthew 5, 24, if your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled to your brother. Man's first great need is receiving forgiveness. Man's second great need with regard to forgiveness is to extend forgiveness. There's first of all a failure to forgive on the part of this man. But the servant, when he is released, went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. And so this fellow servant fell down at his feet, and notice he says almost exactly what he had said to his master. He said, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and threw him in prison till he could pay the debt. When we need forgiveness ourselves, we want mercy. But when it comes to others, we want justice. You would have expected this man, who had been forgiven so much, to go out and joyfully share his experience with others, but he didn't. Instead, he arrested a man who owed him a much smaller amount of money. Now, it is a significant amount of money. It's about four months' wages, but it pales in comparison with what he has been forgiven of himself. And so he took this man and threw him in prison. Now, there's obviously something wrong with this man's heart. And that is the major emphasis, the main point of the story. Although he has the legal right to demand payment, he certainly has no moral right. It is impossible to receive forgiveness gratefully from one end and refuse it vengefully from the other. Now notice an imprisonment of our own making. Verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. The consequence of failure to forgive is that the servant was thrown back into prison along with his family and all of them would suffer together. Now is the Lord suggesting that God the Father is going to employ torturers to teach us a lesson on forgiveness? No. Is he teaching that all those who, for, who fail to forgive will be eternally punished? No. The point being made here deals with the present, not the future, consequences of unforgiveness. To use the Lord's words to accept forgiveness and then to refuse to forgive another is not unfortunate. It's wicked. We will forgive to the extent that we appreciate how much we have been forgiven. 
Let me say this as strongly as I know how. What happened to this man will happen to each of us unless we learn to forgive. The torturers will come and take us away if we don't extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us. The world's greatest prisons are not Alcatraz or Devil's Island, although both those prisons are closed, but because those places can only confine the bodies. The prison that Jesus is describing shackles the soul. And the saddest part is that we put ourselves in this prison. What is the most horrible of prisons? It is the prison of an unforgiving spirit. The alternative to forgiveness is in the end a ceaseless process of hurt, bitterness, anger, resentment, and self-destruction. Ray Steadman tells us powerful illustration of the effects of prison bitterness. He said, I had a striking illustration of that occur a number of years ago. A woman in her 80s told me that 50 years before, her aunt had said something insulting to her, and this woman had never forgiven her. 50 years later, she could recount the event in precise detail, and she felt again the same bitterness and anger and resentment welling up within her as when it originally occurred. It was no wonder to me that by this time she had become a bitter, crotchety, quarrelsome, unhappy woman who could find no happiness in life whatsoever. She was still in the hands of the torturers 50 years later. One final point of disturbing teaching here in verse 35, and so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. We're naturally troubled by this statement because it seems to imply a works-based salvation, which is if you forgive others, which is a work, then you will be in turn forgiven. This is the thought that we can be saved by grace, but if we fail to live up the ideal of forgiveness set by God, God may cancel our forgiveness and throw us into hell after all. One way to handle this thought is we maintain that this is not what Jesus said. Well, it is what he said, but it's not what he meant. He didn't mean it. He was using an exaggeration to make a point. But since that's not what the rest of the New Testament teaches about salvation, then we need to understand that the point Jesus is making is that an unforgiving spirit is a demonstration that we have never really, truly been saved. We've never truly been born again. Since the Bible teaches to be born again means that we become a new creature in Christ Jesus, it means that we, this lack of forgiveness demonstrates that we have not truly had that born-again experience. Forgiveness, in essence, is a decision made on the inside to refuse to live in the past. One husband told his friend, when my wife and I argue, she gets historical. His friend said, don't you mean hysterical? The husband said, no, she gets historical. She brings up all the mistakes I've ever made. Forgiveness doesn't change the past, nor does it deny the pain. 
but it does break the cycle of bitterness that binds us to the wounds of yesterday. Forgiveness allows us to go on and to move on. Corey Ten Boom likened forgiveness to letting go of a bell rope. I grew up in a small country church that had, still had a bell in the steeple and still had the rope in the foyer that you could ring the bell. If you've ever rang a bell, you remember that to get the bell ringing, you have to tug pretty hard. But once you begin to get it to ring, you merely have to maintain the momentum. As long as you keep pulling on the rope, the bell keeps ringing. As Ten Boom said that forgiveness is letting go of the rope. It's just that simple. And when you let go of the rope, the bell keeps ringing. Momentum is at work. However, if you keep your hands off the rope, the bell will slowly and eventually stop. It's like that with forgiveness. When you decide to forgive, the old feelings of unforgiveness and bitterness may continue to assert themselves for a while. After all, they have a lot of momentum. But if you affirm your decision to forgive, that unforgiving spirit will begin to slow and eventually be still. Forgiveness is not something you feel. Forgiveness is something you do. It's letting go of the rope of revenge. Almost always, when we think and talk about forgiveness, the Holy Spirit flashes names and faces across our minds. People who either need, we need to ask for forgiveness from, or people we need to extend forgiveness to. Would you bow your heads with me? And we're going to do our invitation just a little bit differently. I want everyone to bow their head and close their eyes, and I'll ask you a few questions. If you'd like to, for me to pray with you about those matters, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. This morning, do you need to ask for forgiveness from someone? Can you think of a person that you have wronged or someone you have not lived up to your promises with you ready to make a decision today to ask for forgiveness I'd ask you just to slip your hand up very quietly so that I can see it thank you maybe you need to extend forgiveness to someone someone who has wronged you is there someone who has wronged you who you've not been able to let go of this process and so this morning you're ready, to, you're ready to begin to forgive that debt. Then I'd ask you to raise your hand quietly right for, for just a moment. Thank you. <clears throat> Third, do you need to admit that you are a sinner and ask for the forgiveness of God the Father? If you've never done so, then now is the right time. He stands ready to forgive you if you will but ask him. If you need God to forgive you, would you raise your hand this morning? Thank you. Father, you've seen the hands that were raised. You know those this morning who 
feel that they need to ask for forgiveness from someone. And I pray that you'd give them both the courage and the opportunity to do exactly as they have felt that they need to do this morning. For those who feel that they need to extend forgiveness to someone who has wronged them. Lord, I pray that you'd also give them both the time and the opportunity and the courage to do so. Father, for those that believe there's something that they need to find forgiveness from you, then Father, I pray that you'd help them to understand that as they lift those things to you, that your word says that we are forgiven. That if we confess our sins before you, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Father, I pray for each one in this congregation this morning, whatever their need. Maybe message doesn't apply to them at all today. But for those that it does, I pray, Lord, that you'd help them in a very special way to do what you've laid on their hearts this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.